I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Matthew Kennedy Volkovsky, an artist and writer working in fiction, film, theater, performance, yoga, and authentic movement who integrates Lacan and Levinas into his work. His current projects include Terminal Lucid, A Viral Exquisite Corpse, and Virtual Care Lab, Experiments in Remote Togetherness. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Yes, it's good that we finally connected when we planned this. It was the olden days. Yes. (laughs) The before before times. Before the end of the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. How is it over there? It's pretty calm. But Scandinavians yeah. are generally just pretty calm, reserved people. So they might be underplaying it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we've been inside for like three and a half or maybe it's even four weeks now. It's today, Tuesday. Yeah, it's like four weeks already. So we've been taking it very seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, L.A. is weird also, but... I don't know how pe- much people are taking it as seriously here, though. <clears throat> Lots of hanging out around the taco stands still. Yeah. You know. <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. Uh, yeah. So what is this dream project? The pa- project that you sent. Was that for oh, arts or a... dreams? or? No, that's like a... Um... It's like this collective exquisite corpse writing thing that's happening on a blog site. So I'm just inviting people to uh, infect the text that's there with their own being. And it's really growing, interestingly. There's like 12 people writing in it now. And uh, all anonymously, except the fonts are different, so you can tell different voices. And uh, it's it's becoming something interesting. I'm thinking actually of making it a later when it's big enough to do an oral or an audio version of it. You know, with all the different voices. So um, it's growing, which is satisfying. <laughs> and yeah, there's like some pieces of little theory and. Crit- political critique and then there's dreams obviously and then some other things between that some fiction so it's really like becoming an interesting body of text what yeah. did what made you decide to start it what sparked it um well there's other work i do in uh more of a movement oriented movement and speech oriented kind of practice which comes out of dance movement therapy called authentic movement that's kind of what it's known as you know and I've for years I've tried to find something else to call it and 
nothing seems as apt because it's such a problematic term. I like it. So what is authentic? And so it's good. I kind of liken it to the free and free association. You know, it's never free, which is why I like calling it free association. So, so it's an authentic movement based idea really because in authentic movement you stand with your eyes closed I mean you you are there with your eyes closed in front of a witness or a group of witnesses and you follow impulses to move or not move or speak or not speak or make sounds or not make sounds with your eyes closed for a set time and then you know depending on how the group is being run you can have people say what they saw and experienced or not. So, I mean, it comes out of a therapeutic milieu from dance movement therapy, but it's now it's pretty prevalent in the arts and live arts and stuff. So, and I've used it to compose theater and things. But the last, before this uh, explicit social distancing took place, I was working with someone and we had just started to do like a, an oral exquisite corpse of like storytelling and and so back and forth which was working nicely in the authentic movement situation and then the distance happened and for whatever reason i thought i would continue that uh, storytelling practice with strangers anonymously and with text so you can kind of really interfere in others work in a in an interesting way too so so everyone on the blog is an admin and they can do whatever they want to the text the only rule is that there's no deleting allowed because <laughs> nothing can ever be deleted <laughs> so that's how that started it's called terminal lucid actually nice what's your relationship to dreams like my relationship to dreams. Well, let's see. I could put it like this. Uh, the second year of my now defunct marriage, I gave my ex-wife an anniversary gift of a book of all the dreams I'd ever written, which and it was like 560 pages. So I'm, I'm an ad, avid adamant a more adamant dream uh journaler and they do become parts of my fiction and my uh, other work so yeah and you know i've been in either adjacent or involved in psychoanalysis in a way too so they're part of that practice also in writing and rewriting the self in some way so um yeah and that started, well, yeah. I mean, I have dreams from when I was 10 and 11. So, but it's interesting too. I mean, dreams are kind of an exile's paradise in some way. And I really first maybe began the dream project I've been in since when uh, I, I lived in Tokyo for a while. Uh, and that kind of linguistic isolation seemed to really kick off uh, intense dream life where I started to really write them down. So, so it kind of started in a quality of exile, and I think that's right in some way related to dreams too. So, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So you feel like you're, you're like the images and like that sort of thing got more vivid when the language was kind of lessened. For or? sure. Yeah. I mean, I was also, I was also in some sense on the run from family and just getting away too because I, I was 17, 18 so uh, I think Why Tokyo? Quality, it was like one of the farthest places I could go <laughs> from New York <laughs> uh, and also I was very uh, invested in Japanese culture and literature and martial arts at the time and, uh, yeah so I saved money and went there and lived kind of like a squatter's life. It was quite intense. Yeah, yeah. what an amazing experience it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well I like the name of your this podcast. 
<laughs> I'm always wanting to be rendered unconscious. So <laughs> <laughs> it has many layers. <laughs> yeah, like, I was imagining chloroform. Okay. <laughs> Uh, How did you get interested yeah. in psychoanalysis? That's a good question. Well, I mean, uh, like many in the New York City in the 80s, uh, I mean, I was an artist living in Lower East Side after I got back from Tokyo and loved my drugs. So did a decade and a half of good, good drug use and ended up like so many of my uh compatriots in either recovery or not recovery or getting clean some other way and so that kind of led to getting some therapy and yoga they kind of like were two two rungs of a climbing up from something or down into something maybe yeah so therapy psychotherapy and then reading in it I mean I'd read Freud as a teenager and young adult so Come like more the therapeutic and reading into it, and then feeling like uh, psychotherapy, as <clears throat> at least the person I was with was practicing, it wasn't enough in some way for whatever reason. And but I didn't really know alternative uh, paths at that time. But then I eventually went to get my BA and did a graduate class in my final year uh, at the new school and it was it was a class on Lacan and was it just Lacan or somebody else too it might have been Levinas and Lacan or something like that because that was when I hit Levinas also so uh, yeah something about we read in the Acree, where there was like the only translation around at that time, and in the 90s, early 90s. Uh, and something about it really like took kind of like stepping on gum and never getting it off the bottom of your shoe. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, in there ever since. So that kind of led me to seek out some psychoanalysis and read more. And uh, yeah, and the cons you know, understanding of subjectivity and the trauma of language and its effects and situation and all that really, it's, it may be a warning sign to say it made sense, but it did make sense in some way and it still does, which is for better and for worse, I think. So, uh, yeah, and I mean, the reason I connected or reconnected is because you know, I've used some of his texts and in my film work and recognize a lot of retroactive or actual presence in his of of his work and my work just because we're dealing with being human. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, but in a certain way. So so that's why I it's funny like doing this podcast with you and I sent you those links for films, not really expecting an invite, just to kind of share, because it's a small audience, you know, that at least it has been for me so far. So, uh, but it's interesting, the call, there's always a call in the call. And so for you to meet my call with this call is quite interesting to me also. So <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your work. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you do and your creative work. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, fundamentally, I feel like I'm a fiction author, and the forms have been on the page and in theater on the stage and now on the screen more often. Let's see. So the screen work that I sent you... Um, there were two subjects, one in each piece. One was a bee that was in its dying throes, and the soundtrack was one channel Levinas text and one channel Lacan text. I think from seminar 20, maybe. And it was about being, but also about environmental catastrophe and their split, maybe, human being and the environment. Uh, called Sun Map. It's really intense to watch a bee do its thing. 
Um, and the other one was uh, a penis reciting, I think also from Seminar 20, in a woman's voice, the, the urethra of the penis as the mouth. So, uh, so that's maybe some idea of the poles of my work. <laughs> and between the dying bee and the talking penis, I've had more ensemble performed work with human beings, uh, myself and others performing written text. Uh, so far, the theater the theater has been a big presence still in the in the cinema I've made, the quality of time and kind of durational stuff. But and it's always about uh, it always has generally a sexual uh, aspect that kind of treads a line between the pornographic and the traumatic nakedness of things. So I'm, I'm always exploring that and its relation to speech. So, and there's also often a very present Jewish quality, I think to the work as well. Uh, Partially because I'm Jewish and I'm making it, but also because the Jewish texts, whether it's the Talmud or the Torah or whatever, are important to me, uh, not as uh, in the sense of worship, but in the sense of expressions of subjectivity in some way. So, yeah, the notion of being a people of a book is quite moving to me and um, yeah so either the text itself or events kind of very transformed and maybe invisible to most are in some of the work I've made like it's more in the stage work less in the film work right now but the stage work had or has because it's written a relationship to Jewish ritual that's either being profaned or altered or remembered uh, in some way, but often in collision with obscenity and uh, other kinds of uh, uh, sexual or historic traumas. So, you know, it's also darkly humorous. I want to, I always feel like I have to tell people it's. <laughs> For the right ears, it's funny. It sounds you know? like all the elements of the unconscious. It's like sexual, yeah. traumatic, language, humor. Hopefully, and the body. I mean, that was one thing about when I discovered theater making after just working on the page in fiction. Uh, it was very, it was amazing at first, and still is because, you know, I mean, the first time you hear people speak your words is always magic. But but then to be able to really trouble an audience with the presence of a real body or real bodies is very powerful. And I think, you know, social isolation just makes that clear that the presence of bodies is what... Uh, I don't know, a certain, a certain political wish exists to, to what, uh, rid us of that problem. And I think resistance has to do with being bodies present with bodies also. So, you know, but the theater was, an, is an amazing ritual event, you know, that, and that the body is kind of ground zero of, so... How did you find your way into the theater? Well, I guess because I'm so dream-oriented, I'm always searching for that other scene, <laughs> the sight of the other scene. So, But also when I went to get my BA, I, I did a playwriting class because I was there to do like a fiction writing degree, and then I actually switched it to to theater and... That was where my first uh, stage work was made at the new school back then. So I studied with uh, some very good writers, theater people that they had visiting at the time. It was quite a good opportunity. So 
And also at that time, I did. I was doing an internship with uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation to do some to get some internship credits. And uh, so I was part of crews that interviewed like. I think it was like 50 different survivors of the Holocaust in New York City and the area. And uh, so that experience actually was a big part of the first two stage works I made. Actually, no, the second one, not the first one, the second one. Yeah, the Shoah was actually like the first three works I did for the stage. It was like a presence in them. Partially from, uh, you know, just cultural history, but also because of that experience also. And also, you know, uh, the experience of addiction and coming out of that as, and at that time, you know, survivor was a, a, a growing kind of thought in the cultural lexicon. So being a survivor of different things and also having sexual outlaw status in the family for certain things. So it was, you know, the theater was a great place to work on all this stuff. It still is, really, you know. What was that second piece like? second piece was called Sap. What was it like? It was a family tale. (laughs) where the mother was paying men to sleep with her 12-year-old daughter. and It was cast so the 12-year-old daughter was the biggest person on stage, the tallest person. And uh, There was also a kind of magic-ish kind of figure called the mezuzah thief, a guy who uh, would go around stealing mezuzahs from people's doorways, the scroll that Jews put in the threshold Mm -hmm. and uh, there was also a oh so what happens in that piece is the mother sells the daughter to a guy who turns out to be a drug dealer and the deal the drug he's dealing is called survivor and it's made from the hip bones of holocaust survivors he kidnaps and grounds into powder and it's got a big it's very big uh, there's a big demand for it because when you do the drug you get this intense rush of grief that people really want so that was kind of the underlying text of it and most of it is uh, the dialogue between the girl and the dealer and they're naked for a time uh, too long they were naked for a duration that made people really uncomfortable. There was no like sex, just the presence of unclothed bodies that are not involved in anything except being and talking in a certain way uh, really was hard for the audience I heard afterwards, which I was very pleased with in a certain way because the difference between nudity and nakedness is very is a, there's a difference so and I was at that time I was really pushing the naked aspect of things rather than nude aspect of being kind of half half exposed you know because nudity is about hiddenness and nakedness is about uh, exposure to things so I mean, I have uh, ideas about the difference, but yeah, it was a it was a good first experiment with what happens to an audience when they're when they encounter the human body not as a spectacle, but as a a weight of being somehow. So it was quite interesting. Yeah. And what's your most that, recent work? Um. Most recent work is all on screen. Uh, the last thing I made is a feature, almost about 80 minutes long, called Green Cap. Kind of a interwoven experimental narrative work of, I don't know, I think about it as more like a, I mean, the, the core tale is of a mother giving up a child 
again. How about that? Uh, mother giving up her son to the father and the mother leaving. Um, and then there's like a parallel tale of a couple who, uh, who in two scenes, one, they're on the road kind of just walking. One of them's dragging a, a sack. And the other scene, they're in their home, in their bedroom. There's a long dialogue there after an earthquake that only one of them feels. Um, also has an extended naked episode in it that also troubled the audiences it's been shown to so far in a good way, actually. And it's also treading the line of porn and proof and trial in some way. So, uh, yeah, and there's some there's a there's a much more explicit sexual aspect to their scenes where I was kind of thinking about the money shot structure of porn and how that is matched by most Hollywood films, the structure of, you know, getting to the climax and then ending. Uh, so I kind of wanted to diffuse or change that so no one ever comes in this, in this part of that, of the Green Cap film. I mean, there's arousal with no release and then just kind of like abandonment, so... Yeah, I did push things a bit in that piece also. There's, I think, I mean, there's a trans body in it. No, I mean, no one was cast for who they are. They were just cast because they were interested in doing the work. It wasn't written for specific bodies or even genders. Um, but there's a woman who buries chairs, and there's the, the man and the woman and the baby, and then there's... Uh, a guy whose reflection in the mirror is a houseplant, and then there's this other couple. And yeah, so it all weaves into a both dreamlike and terribly not dreamlike tale of power and uh, other things. Yeah. Otherwise, I've been making, I mean, that's, the, that's a feature, and the other things are shorts of like 15 or 18 or 16 minutes. Also poetic and narrative in the sense that they begin and end, but sometimes more or less clearly narrative. How did you decide to start weaving Lacan in? I think Lacan weaved himself in, and I just allowed it in some way, on some level. How did I... I mean, Lacan, because he understood something about Speech being, it's funny, I grew up with a father who was an uh, advertising man, a madman, you know, mm. and uh, so I think I grew up understanding that language was never true in some way, or its use was to, it's, it was a use object, it was a tool, and not an expression of anything real or uh, it was always contingent in some way so and then you know when I became a writer I, I was having a I still remember having a conversation and someone asking me like well you're a writer you must like love language and that's true but there's also this like no it's like I'm a writer because I'm trying to rid myself in some way of it in some way, even though I do love it and question its love of me, but I do love it and it's where I live. I know I live, I know I have a verbal body as well as a physical body. And um, so I think Lacan for me understood this ambivalent dilemma of being a speaking being and when I was in Japan I still also remember thinking that you know um, my native tongue was actually the first translation of something it wasn't my mother tongue it was a translation of something else so 
what that was was curious to me, and I think that's been kind of the foundation of things I'm trying to do creatively and in my other work too. I mean, I've taught yoga for like 20-something years, and it seems it's always seemed to be a parallel but separate track to that, you know, the language of the body and the language of the unspeakable and how they... I mean, I think also what I've resisted and never, uh, could never, and can't still, which is, I think, why the work I make is uh, marginal in its way, audience-wise and festival-wise, and uh, which is okay. I mean, because I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. But there's a kind of other understanding of things, of wholeness and unity, and uh, that you can say the truth. And I don't know, like you can, I've encountered in the yoga world so much, like the, even guru worship and things like that. And I just was never able to wholly commit to this uh, ideal person or 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 lineage or practice or whatever so and i think that's reflected in the work i do it's always trying to effect the break that's already there or at least represent it in some way and not pretend it can be not pretend that the healing of being is one where the break goes away right it's how to inhabit the the gap in some way, or how to live with its in inhabitability, habitability, or something like that. So, yeah. Um, Whenever I get too close to any of this kind of master worship, I just have to like I have to leave. <laughs> like sometimes no, there's really so good elements until you get to that point. I'm like, but I really want to learn this, but I just can't be around it. No kidding. I mean, like I was in the Ashtanga world for a long time and people were kissing, you know, the master's feet. And uh, and now there's all this like revelation of his like, impropriety with students and surprise. You know, and and, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, well, hello. Like <laughs> the same trope over yeah. and over again. I know. It's funny, though. I do feel like it's funny to say, but I do feel like being a Jew kind of saved me from that. <laughs> it was like, there's no way I'm going to bow down to anybody in that way. Like, that's just not what we do. So <laughs> it was quite, it's quite interesting, you know. My uh, friend Manya, yeah. she always said, there's one God and we don't believe in him. <laughs> exactly. The true Jew is an atheist. <laughs> I love that. It's <laughs> yep. very true. But um, working so much with the body, you must see you must have seen like in your own process how much is held in the body, like how much memory and trauma, and, oh, like there's so much. For sure, for sure. Yeah, my I mean, my experience of yoga, especially coming out of like opiate addiction and uh, in like coming from that place of relationship to the body as a as a vehicle of change and as a vehicle of escape uh, into like another practice that also sees the body as a vehicle for certain either escapes or encounters uh, was really great and still always and still is I mean it's still amazing so the practice itself uh, yes yeah, so the way things are held and the way People are trained to become ghosts and not in their bodies anymore. And the incredibly moving privilege of working with people and and being with them as they return is also quite intense, as I'm sure you know from your own practice. Uh, um, and also, I mean, I was actually thinking about this, like in like thinking about talking to you. Um, because there's a quality of, I mean, psychoanalysis. I mean, I, I'm in analysis with a Lacanian analyst here in LA also, and 
the fact that there uh, is no subject that knows in that situation, and that's because I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm read in the theory and and my analyst is in that theory practice. And so I know that we both know that there's no subject supposed to know here. Uh, and I really hear it in his, whenever he does offer reply, and it's it's more frequent than I expected, actually, which is nice. Uh, that uh, that ethic of there being no subject supposed to know, and so we're both there not knowing and and ready for what happens, and the surprise that comes from that, there's a kind of empty space there that in the yoga practice is kind of uh, traced by the breathing, you know, because there's an experience of one's own hollowness or internal spaciousness in when the practice is nice and when it has a chance to get deep. And also, like, you know, in the body, you can penetrate or be penetrated and experience your own internal hollowness or spaciousness or internal mystery in that way. And also, in like, when you're injecting drugs, the inside of your body becomes this mysterious place. You're actually searching with a, a tool to, like, find the right entry. So I th- think there's a... There's an internality and a, a a gap space or a evacuated or excavated or excavation always going on that all these practices seem to be structured around this empty or emptying or at least possibility of unfilling space in some way so i think uh, i hope like some of the experience i'm trying to uh, offer in the the creative work i do is is a space for that for people watching or reading it and i think that's also why it's not easy sometimes so you know Mm. I don't Where know what I would find your writing. Oh, they can they can find all this stuff at uh, the title of my space is a traveling yeshiva sideshow. Uh, but also, I use the last name Volkovsky for my work, so it's it's V like Victor O L C O F S K Y Volkovsky, like Volume Coffee Sky. Dot net. And there's some links to uh, a book and other texts and films and theater. What's the book yeah, like? That's, um, the one that's available is a, is a story collection, 16 stories. It's called A Sacred Misunderstanding. Some long, some short stories. It feels like, I mean, it, it was published in 2013, so it feels like a really long time ago. Uh, the new collection I have hasn't been published yet, but it's also stories, eight eight stories, uh, a little longer each. And that's called End Lo Sung, partially playing on End Lo Sung in German, but which is Final Solution. So. But the title is end, comma, low, L-O-W, song. So stories, either of kids or families. And, yeah, kids, families, and a couple of solos. Experimental, but not too aggressively, this second collection. So readable. And what are you working on now? What am I working on now? Well, that the new uh, funny virus text blog is is nice, so that's up. 
it's also nice to have it being worked on with others. Collaboration is always amazing. So it's so generative. I so think. generative, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's things I can't know until I'm asked, <laughs> which is always amazing. Otherwise, I'm working on a longer text. I guess it's a novel that's called uh, His Violet Mother. And writing, I mean, I have, I have uh, screenplays written and looking for ways of getting them made, uh, TV or, or cinema. And yeah, I also have a... This funny three-year project I've, that actually yesterday, the first year was cycled through of, I've never actually done the Jewish thing of reading the Torah every day, so I decided last year to start it. So yesterday I actually finished the first cycle, and I did my own commentary every day. So, because it's like this thing in Jewish teaching where you're supposed to write your own Torah, so I took it, I'm going to take it very literally, and do that. So I did the first cycle of commenting on each day's reading. Uh, and I mean, I started in the middle. So now I'm back to where I started. So I'm, now I'm going to add everyday journal to the commentary on the reading. And then the third year will be writing fiction for every week's reading. So and it'll be it'll be a totally unwieldy and probably unpublishable text, but it might be interesting, so we'll see. But it sounds like the process would be really well, the fulfilling. Process, so far, the process has been great, and uh, what has taught me about that text and about text and being a text and the master signifier and how the Jews really were responding to the crisis of the master signifier <laughs> and reading it in that frame has been super fascinating so quite amazing yeah and you know i'm also involved with uh analytic seminars out here in la so that's always that's been good and i feel like i'm on the threshold of maybe doing a training to do an analysis uh, i've been on the threshold of that for a few years so it might be, I might like it on the threshold and not have to <laughs> tip. I'm not sure. But I think you must know Scott Vaughn, right? Do you know Scott Vaughn? Yeah. So he's out in L.A. now, and I was actually at Libertine a couple, just once, actually, his gallery. And he had a thing there. But I was actually saying to someone the other day, like, uh, I think I'm on the threshold of doing analysis, but... I kind of feel like with this authentic movement, which is very, also gets to something no, nothing else gets to, uh, I'd like to somehow work with people that way more. So I was thinking I should just like hang a shingle and just drop the cycle from it. <laughs> and then I, uh, I heard Scott Vaughn the other day on some live stream say the same thing. So it's kind of funny, but... Yeah, maybe drop the cycle and just start doing analysis with people. But uh, I have questions about that, too, so I'm not sure. Yeah, there's an institute in New York, too, too called the Institute for Expressive Analysis, where the analysts in formation there are mostly, like, from the creative arts, like like art therapists or uh, music therapists or dance therapists and that sort of thing. I, I think that's really wonderful. Hmm. Do they have any connection on the West Coast at all, do you know? I'm not sure, but I can find out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Also, I mean, I don't know if you've been up to Montreal or to Quebec for Willie Apollon's thing, but reading his work also has been quite great, actually. I was, at, I was actually there for a weekend seminar up there, and their work is really fascinating, so... Um, Theoretically, too. What was that weekend like? Uh, The the weekend was fucking freezing. It was like (laughs) January, I think. Or no. What month was it? It was in Montreal. And it was like 
really cold. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a it was a three days of a room full of uh, insane psychotherapists and psychoanalysts and um, presentations and interventions and uh, commentary and. And I had, didn't really know about Gifrik, Gifrik that much, but I'd heard about it, so I wanted to see if I wanted to cross that threshold. But uh, And I'd only read uh, the book after Lacan, which is the Apollon text that's around, and that was like from 20 years ago. And so I think his thinking had changed a bit, and he was talking about the spirit and other things that I didn't quite understand where he uh, how it had kind of in 20 years turned to that vocabulary and I wasn't that clear about what was being uh, talked about but his his structural theories were really and were really excellent and um, yeah I mean the presentations were interesting I didn't feel like it was a group that I'd want to uh, join at that time. Uh, I didn't feel like uh, so aligned. And also, my French is not great, so it would be hard anyway. Uh, but then after that, I, I read some of his more recent ideas uh, concerning what he understands is spirit, which is coming from what he calls the audible. And it made much more sense retroactively what he was talking about. So, and I really like his thinking about uh, human time beginning in the audible and which is the voice coming from outside the, the womb, mm. right? While you're in utero. That while you're in utero, you hear this voice that's not the voice or the organs or the world of the mother you're inside, but some other voice comes that she responds to and it causes a change in your held environment. So you know there's something else out there, and that split is actually the moment when human time begins, when this other voice arrives. So that to me is, and it becomes like this the pursuit of that objectless object becomes the driving pursuit of human ethics and aesthetics. So that to me makes super physical, real, emotional sense, you know? And, That's so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, he works with psychotics, so it makes sense that he got that, he got there, you know, being taught by them. So... Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that to me is really suddenly is an important idea that I'm starting to work with. So that I've been working with, but now that I know, it's funny, like you know, the way people's frames reframe your frame. So you know, frames and frames. Absolutely. But yeah, that's why I love reading yeah. a lot of different theorists. For sure. Sure. I also like I, I saw your recent casts that your magic stuff. I wonder how that aligns with your analytic work too. Like it doesn't really. <laughs> so it's just like just like a just like a another realm. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people ask me like, oh, do you bring that into analysis or like teach people things or anything? And it doesn't. It, I don't. It's more that I just don't judge people that talk about things like that. That's probably the main difference. Whereas like other analysts will be like, oh, someone's going into this magical thinking, like psychosis realm, um, huh. and especially other psychologists. uh but it's more that, you know, you can say whatever you want and I'm not going to think you're crazy, basically. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> Which good. is what an analyst is supposed to do. All analysts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 no, 
No, it's interesting to me because magic seems to be working with, you know, signs and the signifier in a way of and their power and stuff like that. So Yeah, I definitely I'm ambivalent. I think I'm going to end up writing about it analytically. Like I think it's inevitable, but I'm also ambivalent about it cuz I don't want to like 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 the last book, the book I just finished writing was on uh, scansion and psychoanalysis and art and it's like something you're so excited about when you start writing the book when I started to write the book and then like you know after a couple of years it's like ruined it for you you know (laughs) it's like why am I thinking about art in this way why can't I just like leave art alone you know (laughs) and I don't want to do that to magic but I do think there's something uh because clearly people don't understand how it works quote unquote but i think there's something about ritual magical practices that like knots the imaginary symbolic and real in some way uh like a symptom but like a symptom you're creating through these rituals i don't know i've been thinking about it in that way and i think there's something to that so i'm going to end up having to think and write about that at some point i think isn't there, but isn't there always like a desired uh, goal or desired outcome with magic? Well, I think that's the other thing is that I think I think about it a little differently in that like instead of, I think most people think about it and practice it in a way where they like have a specific intention and it's very specific and they want to formulate that and make it happen in their lives. Whereas I see it more as like the practice um allows you to kind of be in line more with what your unconscious is like you said like being able to live with the fact that things aren't going to be perfect or in line um not trying to fill in the gap or like make it a certain way but rather like align yourself with kind of your own drive and desire um even though you don't fully understand what that is just kind of trusting that you just Uh need to kind of go with it and work with yourself and i feel Uh like artistic creative practices and psychoanalysis and magical practices all help you do that Uh so any combination of those three is useful for people but i don't think you can predict the outcome or know what you want um i think you have to kind of trust that you're going to create what you want whether that's what you thought you wanted or not (laughs) does that make sense yeah so i think my idea of it is different than um, maybe the popular popular ideas of it yeah 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 I'm, i'm not that versed in it but but also i mean what you were saying made me think of just the way uh, I relate to objects, which is a big part of the film and the theater that I make, and that the objects and the humans on sometimes are on a horizontal level of of sameness in some way. Or like what's crucial in in a moment of a work is that how one object gets from one part of the stage to the other. That's really the most important thing that's happening for the human beings and the human beings are there just to facilitate the objects (laughs) transport. So uh, the life of objects and the life of humans as not as objects, but as objects of objects in some way. I'm not sure, but just made me. Subjects of subjects. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And objects of subjects. 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 <laughs> and objecting and subjecting. <laughs> yes. I will be doing. There's a place called Naval LA. It's like a community uh, organization here. Uh, and they're going to, for social distancing, they're, they've invited me to do authentic movement via Zoom. So that's going to be happening starting next Wednesday and it might be a weekly thing so I can maybe put a link up for that and oh, cool. it's going to be evening time LA time so maybe for you guys it might be impossible but for people in on the east coast it'll be possible it's going to be seven o'clock LA time once a week for a few hours should be interesting doing authentic movement remotely nice um, yeah, that'll be fun. Um, otherwise, event-wise, no. 
nothing. Um, but people can definitely look at my movies and read some stuff and <clears throat> see some plays that have been filmed that are up on my site. So, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and Meadow with the Corpse. Oh, yeah, Meadow with the Corpse. It's <laughs> it's really It's really becoming a fascinating text. So... And I think it's kind of really apt for the moment. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Matthew Kennedy Volkovsky. For more, please visit his website, volkovsky.net. That's V O L C O F. S-K-Y dot net. An authentic movement lab will be next held on April 15th via Zoom. To register, please visit Naval LA N-A-V-E-L dot L-A Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. And now, Leather Night, from the recently released album Sound 23, by myself and Douglas Lucas, available from Highbrow Low Life and Trapart Editions. Accept patients suffering from, we cannot keep them for long, unless there is some prospect from medical opinion that the patient is prevented by mental illness from understanding all events objectively and correctly, from judging them by circumstances as they really are and from taking his decisions after unimpaired, sensible consideration and with free will, then clearly in this case, the existing calming madam, cinematic language of his magical, which doesn't magic and occultism, the on its own two feet. I was talking to the same woman from May 7th and as understand her words, but I did not know that the trip had sense or bodily or memory. Digital media has as posits the shadow as plastic as Alice. It is to magnify and projects contents are certainly profound and monumental. Though social media is addictive, 
sucking us out of the world into a second-hand world of screens. The simple ache, and in such moments it is to miss society's turn in order to remake cultural reference between the French fin de siècle.